The World of Dark Ages podcast presents Side Quests, tidbits and inspiration for the Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Side Quests. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. So, in modern day, or night, um, vampire, the neonates of Dark Ages are the elders. But what about elders in the time of Dark Ages? Um, this side quest, as well as a few upcoming ones, we're going to look at what elders from a different time period and culture would be like in the time of the Dark Ages setting. Um, so, Peter, um, why don't you start us off? Uh, yes, and I'm I'm going to start off by taking us back to the time of, of ancient Greece uh, and to to set up uh, set up. Uh, the kind of setting that that we're going to uh, be visiting. I'm I'm just going to give you um, a short rundown of of what I think is important to bring from uh, from a- ancient Greece uh, that could be interesting to know and to use as a story seed. Uh, because uh, yeah, to 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 kind of give the background to the to the elder character that I'm going to present later on uh, and. To begin with, first of all, um, ancient Greece—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's kind of—it's not a misnomer, but you—you kind of have to be familiar with the concept because it's—it's it's not a monoculture, just like Germany in the Middle Ages isn't one country; it's—it's it's a bunch of smaller states, and you have the Italian city-states as well, or for that matter, uh, the United States of America is very different depending on on which part of it you choose to to visit. Uh, not only culturally, but um, climate-wise and and economical and stuff like that. So and what so, food you can get there? <laughs> oh yeah, especially uh, and food again is is a big part of culture, no matter where and when you are. So so when we, when I'm I'm talking about ancient Greece, I'm I'm talking about the, the classical Greek era, which is about 700 uh, BC to about 300 BC. Uh, of course, before that, we way back when we had the Minoans, uh, w- which was a culture centered centered on, on the island of Crete, uh, and they were the one who had the uh, kind of uh, bull uh, or or at least cow centered culture, and and they were the ones that were supposed to have the labyrinth with the Minotaur, uh, and uh, after that you had the Mycenaean Mycenaean culture. Um, which is uh, more centered on on the actual mainland of Greece, uh, and and then we, we finally get to the classical Greek era with with all the the heroes and and gods and stuff, which of course were kind of around before then. But when when we talk about ancient Greece with the philosophers and the science and the stuff, <laughs> that is what we talk about. Um, and and after that we have the uh, Alexander the Great came around and and basically created a huge Greek empire, uh, which way I will also touch on. Uh, oh just, God, just I'm, I'm just thinking the, the, the controversy of is, uh, was Alexander Greek or was he Macedonian and is Macedonian <laughs> Greek and things like that. I think we should try yeah. to avoid that. Yeah, one. I'm, I'm not going to, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to avoid that as much as I can, but, but anyway, for, for me, there are, there are three um, kind of areas that, that define uh, Greek, ancient Greek culture for, uh, for me at least uh, and, and this isn't going to be like a history lesson with what exactly happened when and everything like that but but rather 
what what kind of things do I think would influence um, the, a, a game, a vampire game set in this area? So first of all, we have the the culture and and science part of it because during this time you you had everything from from uh, the construction of, of amphitheaters, which are these huge outdoor theaters, which uh, acoustically are designed so that no matter where you sit up um, in uh, as an audience, you can always hear the people uh, down at the stage speaking, which is kind of an engineering feat in and of itself. That's also, pretty impressive. Yeah, if if you ever go to Greece, Greek, uh, Greece, and have the opportunity to to go to an actual amphitheater, do it. Um, I I remember when I was a child, when we went there, and I was sitting up. The the tour guide basically showed us that you could stand down in in center stage and and whisper, and you would hear it um, as long as everyone else kept quiet, at least, <laughs> even <laughs> even back up in in the uh, nosebleeds. Uh, so, so yeah, you have stuff like that. You have you have triremes, uh, which is a kind of warship uh, that is uh, quite an uh, engineering feat as well, because they have three uh, rows of, of rowers on top of each other, and and just figuring out how to get all of these hun- literally hundreds of oars rowing without kind of getting caught up in each other is is quite yeah. impressive. Um, and and uh, yeah yeah so so you have the culture of that you have you have all the um, the the building stuff you you have the the artwork and pottery uh, you have the theater um, and for for me I'm I'm going to kind of go off uh, away from from established canon in a way that classically uh, Greece has been the center of of Brugia during this time period um, and and. I feel that pretty much, at least if you want to play it that way, any kind of of vampire clan should be able to fit in any kind of culture as long as you figure out a good reason for it. So, Mm. for for example, um, in a lot of of the plays, um, for example, you have have humans basically messing around uh, with with gods and and taunting them and, and doing stuff like that. And um, playing tricks on them, and, and it never playing turns out well. Yeah, <laughs> well, it, no, exactly. Uh, but again, they, they, they play tricks. The gods play tricks on each other as well. And, and oh, I feel yeah. that Malkavians or even Ravnos would love that kind of stuff. Uh, mm. And and then again, that you mentioned that it never turns out well. Well, that 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 brings us to to Hubris, uh, which I I'm guessing that the Ventru as a clan are probably a big fan of of Hubris, which is the the folly of mortals thinking that they can um, outwit the gods, um, yeah. and and so if they do that, the gods would send um, Nemesis, which is the goddess of basically putting you back in place um, and and giving you a terrible punishment. Uh, so I'm I'm thinking that the Ventru probably like Hubris and Nemesis. Uh, so so that's kind of the the first part uh, and and the second part uh, is of course philosophy we, we all know about the, the greek thinkers the uh, socrates and aristotle and and all of the rest and again yeah. i'm i'm not going to really go into them because then we this is going to be a long side quest <laughs> uh, but i'm i'm thinking that the way that that uh, these 
thinkers influenced society in such a way um, would be a great way to have uh, to have vampires influence mortal society. I'm, and I'm, I'm not going to say that Socrates was... Uh, uh, he was uh, a real peasant, uh, but he uh, <laughs> was very rarely stable. Uh, no, but I'm, I'm not going to say that he's a vampire, but I would suggest that perhaps one of his students might have some ideas, and for some reason that student only showed up when it was dark, uh, and he looked kind of pale, I don't know, or uh, some other, like... Someone who didn't like Socrates perhaps was some important person who also only showed up at night. So, so kind of stuff like that. How how you can use the uh, the philosophers and and just the way that philosophy was taught and used in ancient Greek Greece uh, as a way to uh, to influence mortals in your game. Like have have the great thinkers and the great debaters uh, talk about stuff that is kind of obviously uh, connected to to Knights, for example. Yeah, and, and I, I think the, the philosophers also really give us an idea of, of Greek society in that it was a society where you had enough surplus that you could have people mm. whose only job really was to, to think about things and they were highly valued rather than, you know, artisans and, and people who produced food. Uh, were highly valued. They, they they valued thought because they had enough surplus that they could do that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, yeah, you you could have people just basically lying around being very unproductive, uh, at least when it comes to producing actual stuff. Uh, <laughs> which which kind of brings me into my my third point that I think kind of defines uh, ancient Greece, and that is religion and mysticism, uh, mm. be, because you have probably a literal fuckton of, of gods, great and small, in, <laughs> yes. in Greece. Uh, and you, you have everything from, from the, the 12 great gods of, of Mount Olympus with, with Zeus uh, and Hera at, at the top to you could have like a small river god that was basically just the god of this particular river uh, and everything in between. Um, so, so if you want um, stuff like that, it's, it's a perfect place to start. Um, and, and what I really like about uh, Greek religion is that the gods are, are very human or, or humane in the way that they do have their flaws. They can be tricked. They, they can get jealous and, and pissed off or uh, enamored or, or fall in love with mortals. Um, and of course, that has consequences. Uh, but it's... It's not always the, the gods who has the last word. Sometimes the gods do get tricked. Uh, mm. For example, the, which I find is kind of hilarious, is that uh, the Greek god of war, uh, Ares, um, who would then become the Roman god Mars, uh, there is a story about him being trapped uh, in a bronze jar for 13 months. Uh, and basically he's forgotten by the rest of the gods because he's kind of this... Um, he, he is a great warrior, but, but he's also kind of a brute and an asshole. So when he disappears, oh, yes. people just don't really care about it until uh, the trickster god Hermes uh, finds him. Uh, and when he, he is finally released from this, this bronze jar, he's, um, as you kind of would expect from, from sitting in a jar and not doing anything for 13 months, uh, he is really weak and, and kind of has to uh, regain his powers be before he can go and become be this badass again. 
So, so you have stuff like that, and you have uh, Odysseus, uh, who is also a trickster, um, and and that is a thing that I like is the, is that wit and intelligence uh, is is often at least or not even more desirable as as brute strength or, or physical prowess. Um, like for example, even uh, even Hercules, he he uses his wits sometimes, like when he can't kill uh, the the famous lion. He, yeah, the Nemean lion. Yeah, the Nemean lion. He 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 figure out. So in some version, he gets help from a, uh, from someone to to like. No, you can't you can't pierce its hide, so you have to strangle it and stuff like that. He uh, he, uh, he realizes that he can't clean the stable, so he diverts a river to wash it out from. Like he uses his brain. He's he's not just uh, uh, like the the Arnold Schwarzenegger. Which is kind of unfair because he's a, uh, also quite intellectual, but he is this <laughs> intellectual uh, big bruiser uh, as well. Um, yeah, the 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 idea was that um, as long as you win, you don't necessarily have to win just through brute strength. I mean, if you take one of the most famous stories, uh, the Siege of Troy, oh, yeah. the yeah. the Greeks eventually they don't win by knocking down the walls; they win through trickery and uh brains rather than brawn yeah exactly so so you have you have like both desirable so you can have you, you could have a hero that is is very clever but not necessarily the strongest and and this i think kind of go goes back to to uh Brugia, uh, or at least what they were back then that that you you have to own uh hone your both your uh your mental skills and your physical skills uh so so, so again, um, I, I found that ancient Greece is a place that is really well suited for most clans and and many different kinds of stories. Oh, yeah. uh, so you can have uh, high diplomacy and intrigue, and or just open warfare and and or backstabbing. Because as you said, it, it doesn't matter how you win as long as you win. And there are a bunch of of stories. Uh, about uh, people committing treachery and backstabbing and, and dressing up and, and using um, all all sorts of, of trickery to to get their um, get what they want uh, and and there's also a lot of humor in it like like for example the the Spartans when they're fighting the Persians and the Persians tell them to um, surrender the weapons and and the famous reply is come and get them. Uh, yeah, and and it was also speaking of of Macedonians. I think it was a Macedonian king who wanted to conquer Sparta, and and said something along the lines of, uh, "If if I conquer Sparta, I will burn it to the ground." And the Spartans just replied, "If, if. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is that is the most badass reply." Because yeah, he said, "If I conquer," and then he had a long list of stuff that he was going to do, like yeah. rape your women, burn it everything down, and the single reply was just, "If, if. yeah, it's, it's 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 just badass." Mm. So, uh, yeah, so, so again, there, there are a lot of, speaking of Sparta, uh, I think that would be, if you want to include Bali in your game, uh, I think they would feel right at home uh, very in, much in so. Sparta, because you have uh, this, this very, in a way, destructive society of, of uh, like, um, ter- not tearing away humanity, but kind of like making you very cynical and, uh, and harsh and and brutish, which could mm. be exploited by the Bali. Uh, you you had um, uh, servant class um, that were the helots. The, the, yeah, the helots. So if if you want to have 
uh, a Spartan Bali just slaughtering helots, then no one would basically live, care about it and lift a finger to stop it because that's the, the way, at least in the world of darkness, that Sparta would be. Yeah, and, and they were the, the uh, sort of um, high-ranking Spartan children. When they were being taught, they were deliberately given less food than than they really needed and were expected to steal so that they wouldn't go hungry. But at the same time, if they were caught stealing, they would be punished. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so yeah, you, you have a very brutal society in, in Sparta, uh, which kind of... Uh, and... Again, well, most most of Greek Greece at the time was kind of brutal because you had a system of slavery uh, oh, yeah. that wasn't as bad as other places. But again, it is slavery. You could be bought and sold um, if you were good at something, like for example, being an artisan or a philosopher. You would probably have fairly uh, a fairly good life even as a slave. But again, you could be bought and sold, and. Um, if- it- yeah, but interesting thing is though they they if I recall correctly had laws regarding how slaves could be treated, and one thing that I've, I think is rather interesting if you look at the the laws that the Greeks had about slaves, look at the laws that the Romans had, and then as uh, move up through time, uh, laws about slaves uh, become uh, well they they eventually disappear, but they become more and more uh, uh, brutal, less uh, humane. It's one of the few things where you move away from yeah. treating people humanely mm. as history progresses, which I th- yeah. I've always find kind of interesting. Yeah, it's it's one of the darker sides of humanity, unfortunately. Very much uh, so. But, and, and even so, uh, Athens, who is, is kind of hailed as the, um, the, the uh, founding place of, of modern democracy, only a very small, between uh, a tenth and a third uh, of the population were actually allowed to vote and take part in in the democratic uh, process, uh, because again they were uh, it was uh, exclusive to uh, or it, it excluded foreigners, slaves, women, and people who didn't own uh, property. So so again, it's it's a very exclusive society, uh, even though it's perhaps it is better than the city state of Sparta or some other places, uh, but it is a great place. To, to set um, uh, um, a vampire game, I feel, um, mm. and and again other other clans that could could work. I'm thinking that um, that Gangrel would probably feel quite at home in uh, at least in the countryside of Greece because you have all this uh, difference. You have fauns and satyrs and and other uh, these these half beast half man creatures. Uh, that that are running around, uh, sometimes doing mischief and sometimes being being really like monstrous, uh, and and I feel that uh, in in a way there could be a, a good explanation to either where the myth comes from, or that uh, that a gangrel who has had quite a few friends and thus all of these different uh, animalistic features could hide away by saying that no i'm i'm not a monster i'm just your friendly satire hey come party <laughs> with me and my dionysian friends um and again i'm, I'm thinking that toreadors and satites would also love this uh dionysian um kind of hedonistic parties um, very much so uh and and again the like to to incorporate the things of of greek culture in in kind of a vampire way 
uh, we have the story of Orpheus, who, who was a famous uh, lyre player uh, and musician in general, and, and he could play uh, his, his music so that even the beasts would, would fall asleep, and, uh, and the Orgonauts, who, uh, who are after the Golden Fleece, they, they use him to, uh, to soothe a dragon. And and I'm thinking that what if what if that dragon isn't or originally wasn't like a monster or a dragon, but the story has been uh, kind of diluted or, or perverted. So it was actually a, a, a Toreador that he played for, uh, because as we all know, Toreadors when they hear uh, or, or they they have their clan weakness where they are kind of entranced when when they see a thing of beauty, and and I think that. This could be a, a way to incorporate their weakness into this kind of story. Mm, yeah, uh, and and we also have other myths like the uh, the, the god Hephaestus, who is this? He is supposed to be very strong, and uh, and and he is the smith of the gods. He's the one who creates the uh, the thunderbolts for Zeus, for example. Uh, but he's often described as a crippled and very ugly. Uh, so what if? He or the origins for the, the myth was Anosferatu, um, and and because if if nothing else, we we have that uh, uh, high level potence power where you can make magical weapons. Yeah. Uh, so again, if if you want to include those kinds of stuff, uh, then 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 ancient Greece is a perfect place. Um, and a, if if you really want to kind of go out there, this is this is a short uh, kind of, of divergent path but there's or there was rather a, a, a at least an amateur scholar called Iman Wilkins who wrote a book called Where Troy Once Stood uh, and he argues that that the Trojan War and, and the Iliad and the Odyssey and all that didn't take place in uh, what is modern day Turkey which is where they found the, the city of Troy uh, mm. But rather that it was supposed to take place in in England and Wales, uh, <laughs> for for reasons. Uh, the, the Is re- there anything that the English and Welsh will not try to uh, to say has to do with well, them? I mean, that, that, Jesus is supposed to have gone over there, yeah. and what um, North America was originally colonized by the Welsh. Yeah, but something the, like that. The fun thing is that Iman Wilkins, I think it was Dutch actually, which oh, makes, which just makes it even weirder. But, but if, <laughs> if you want to have a, a good laugh and a bit of a, a conspiracy, then, then look up where Troy once stood because it's all of the so-called evidence are just so thin, and and it's like yeah, they found Bronze Age stuff in in England, so that must must mean that it's it's Troy and. And it's like no, no, it's not. No, please. <laughs> oh, God. For the love of everything. Right. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, that's that's kind of uh, that's that's the end of, of kind of the background. So hopefully the, this has given you some ideas on what you could include or or use as an inspiration uh, for this, uh, which brings me to uh, the elder that I I want to present from you, uh, and he's simply called Alexandros, the Greek, uh, mm. and he is a Malkavian, but I feel that this kind of character could probably work uh, with some slight alterations as either a Ravnos or a Ventru as well. Uh, and he is firmly on the road of humanity uh, because he has seen 
so so many things that that humans have been capable of doing. So he's kind of convinced that uh, that humans is is where it's at, <laughs> uh, and. Um, I'm, I'm kind of basing him a bit on uh, there's um, th- there's a book called The Arcadians by um, by an author called Lloyd Alexander. I don't know if you've uh, uh, the with. name Lloyd Alexander definitely rings a bell. He, uh, um, yeah, he, he wrote uh, I can't remember what they were called, but didn't he write those uh, books based on Welsh mythology? Yeah, he, he did as well, and he, he did a bunch of, of similar stuff like um, based on. Uh, on mythology, but giving it more of a uh, not not necessarily realistic, but but more of a, a realistic-ish base. So mm. the the story for the Arcadians is that it's it's set in in ancient Greece, and it it kind of gives an explanation to how all of these myths are based. Like for example, the the uh, centaurs uh, they aren't half human, half uh, half horse. But it, they are basically just people riding, and mm, at yeah. a distance, they kind of look like like they they're the same animal. And so, when you have a half blind, kind of half mad character who sees them at first, and he, he that that's how he describes them. And so it's 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 a very it's it's kind of a deconstruction of the tropes, which I am a really big fan of, uh, because you you have all these stories and and they just grow and people exaggerate and they exaggerate their their own part in it uh, and and so you have uh, like um the the organots who are going to uh, to find the golden fleece and become uh, like being the heroes of the land and and we do this because the gods want us to they were just basically a band of uh, of bandits who wanted to steal <laughs> some gold uh, and and so that's how that happened um and and so this is something that I kind of included in in the the backstory or or the concept of of Alexandros the Greek. Uh, he himself started out with quite humble origins uh, as a trader from Athens. Uh, he he traveled far and wide, and he and and it was during these uh, travels where he heard something, uh, perhaps in what is now Sicily, but back then was a Greek colony. Uh, he he heard a story, and then perhaps a few. Years later, he heard the same story somewhere else, uh, and it had just become more and more exaggerated. So he he realized how easily rumors can be spread and how easily they can be exploited. Uh, so he he used this for for his trading, kind of like uh, setting a seed here and then going to another place. And uh, have you have you heard about that the the Persians are going to invade or that there's going to be a war? Well, you better buy my bronze so that you can make uh, uh, make, make a bunch of uh, weapons now before it's too late and, and stuff like that. Uh, and so he, he spent quite some time. He, he learned a lot of linguistics, but he basically sailed around the Mediterranean uh, until one unfortunate uh, night when uh, his ship was more or less destroyed at sea and uh, he was... Um, he was the lone survivor, uh, and and he was just stuck uh, at at sea, uh, drifting around, uh, having no means of of getting anywhere. Um, and after many many weeks, uh, he was found delirious and dying from thirst by a creature that is going to turn out to be a Malkaven. 
uh, and uh, uh, this creature took him to a cave uh, on on his, their island home, and they started chatting and, and swapping stories. Uh, and each morning, the the creature would would block the entrance to the cave, and each night it would drink a tiny amount of blood from Alexandros, uh, mm. who kind of realized that that sooner or later this is this is going to end up badly for me because I'm getting weaker and weaker from this creature feeding on me. Um, and so finally came the night when, when Alexanders uh, knew he would die and gathering all his wits, he, he told his final tale, which uh, was apparently quite amusing uh, because the creature just started laughing and laughing and decided to embrace him uh, instead of, of killing him outright. Uh, and ever since then, Alexandrus has, has been a storyteller and uh, and a gatherer of, of knowledge. Um, mm, uh, I like so, that. So he, uh, yeah, he, he, every once in a while he goes back to the cave and, and tells his uh, sire what, uh, what else he has learned. And sometimes perhaps they have traveled together. Uh, but he... He remembered his uh, his lessons from from his mortal days, so he has used his powers to spread rumors, and sometimes he has used it to start conflict between Ventru and Bruja, or to humiliate uh, Bali, or I don't know, mock uh, arrogant Toriador. Um, mm. So uh, so yeah, you you have this very well traveled um, character. He he has uh, in in. Uh, well, not the modern days, but in in uh, the Dark Ages setting, he has settled down somewhat. So he's uh, based uh, in Athens, but he's still fairly mobile, and he uh, still have havens here and there, or at least contacts in in places like Germany and Italy, and and perhaps even France or or Spain. Um, and and he likes spouting profound nonsense disguised as prophecies. Uh, which is a trick he picked up in 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 Delphi a long time ago, um, and and no one really knows if he believes the stuff himself, and sometimes not even he uh, is is sure about it because I'm I'm thinking that his his derangement is that uh, at least to him most of the stories he tells are are real, like he he does know that he exaggerates them, but he can't really help himself, so that. The time when when he and uh, uh, a bunch of friends, or when he heard about uh, this this gang of friends uh, sailing across the sea to uh, to bring back uh, one of the the guys' uh, kidnapped wife, it turned into this huge storm with thousands of ships and was a huge siege, and it took years and years. Uh, but finally, they managed to to do something about it. So th- <laughs> that that's kind of the stuff that that he's into, and and. Uh, he probably still uh, talks to to satyrs and and hydras and whatever that he finds in the forests. Perhaps it is that no one else can see them, but he he still enjoys talking to them because if nothing else, they um, they they still remember the what what a great place Greece was the, all those hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And given high levels of dementation, he might make you see them as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. And, and again, this is, if he was a Ravnos, he could just use, use um, what's it called, Ke- chemistry. chemistry. Yeah, to, to do the same thing. Uh, or if it was a Ventru, he could use this in a lot more political way to spread the rumors and stories and, and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, but I'm, I'm thinking that uh, Alexandros in, in a game... Uh, would obviously be an NPC because he's so old and powerful, um, and and he would be 
to the players or, or uh, as a resource, it would be a great uh, source of knowledge and, and secrets. And it doesn't really matter if it's the, the recipe for Greek fire or the intimate secrets of, of Charlemagne or uh, how to open a hidden uh, door in the wall of Jerusalem. He probably knows something <laughs> about it. Uh, it. It might be that his derangement causes him like... It, he can't really give a straight answer, or, or to him he does. But it, like, if if you ask that, yeah, how do we how do we get here? Uh, the the directions might include well, first you go to Hades, and then you travel <laughs> three days north from that, uh, or or if you have to find a secret passage in a castle, he he will give you instructions on how to bypass the Minotaur as well, because otherwise you're you're never going to get there anyway. <laughs> so so yeah, he's he's a bit of a. a Friendly and helpful, um, at least he tries to be, uh, and especially to members of his own clan. And and he also likes uh, Gangrel and Nosferatu and Brugge because I'm I'm thinking that those are the kind of uh, people that he would hang out with. Uh, he mm. opens uh, openly dislikes the Tremere for their hubris of of trying to be not necessarily as the gods, but as as the vampires, because... Yeah, mortals taking on vampires. Exactly. That, that's hubris right there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and when it comes to other uh, of the higher clans, like the Ventru and La Sombra, uh, and also possibly uh, Toreador, uh, he, un- unless they can, they, they can display the proper knowledge of culture, uh, which to him would be like reciting passages of the Odyssey in classical Greek, and, and stuff like that, he, he kind of dismisses them as, as upstarts and, and barbarians because, what, mm. you you don't know the Odyssey by heart? Come on. <laughs> and and you, you, you can't quote Socrates? Oh, what, what, why are you even here? What, what use are you going to be? Uh, so, so, yeah, and, um, uh, and, and in exchange for his information, he, he usually just wants some kind of uh, either a favor, like to to uh, uh, trick someone or uh, prank someone, uh, or that he just wants some kind of, of information back, like oh, you you have the missing pages of the or the deleted scene of the extended DVD edition of, of Apocalypse Now. I, I haven't bought that yet, so yeah, we can we can trade. Um, so uh, so yeah, it, it, but and if the characters are like, yeah, we're going to use this information to, to start a war or uh, hurt people, he probably won't be as interested in helping them uh, because that's that's just not his his thing. Um, mm. He's he's not actively out to cause malice, uh, but again, if if you are an, an elder vampire, your your pranks and tricks might actually cause people harm but that again that's not what he's after um and and if oh sorry you wanted to ask him no no go go right ahead yeah no i'm just going to finish off by saying that um if if he is cornered he will at first try to dominate his attackers to leave uh because i'm i'm figuring that being of this age he would have picked up uh uh, some other discipline so probably dominate just to get around uh, as well as uh, fortitude to survive traveling out in the sun or at least survive the sun if he needs to uh, and probably some animalism as well just to have more well not people but things to talk to and uh, <laughs> again 
a lot of Greek culture, you have these not necessarily talking animals, but people transformed into animals or, or gods uh, turning themselves into animals. Uh, so, so I think animalism would be a, a useful uh, discipline for anyone wanting to uh, <laughs> traverse ancient Greece. Um, so yeah, if if anyone is like being rude to him, he at first he will dominate them to to just uh, piss off. Uh, and if that doesn't work, he'll he'll just excuse himself and and try to leave. Uh, and as a last resort, if if that if if he is actually attacked and and kind of fighting for his life, he will show what an almost two millennia old vampire can do to to any upstart neonate. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, given given that those levels of of dementation, I mean, it's probably going to be a fate worse than death. Yeah, probably. If if you want to be, or if he wants to be really mean, uh, I'm thinking uh, you can draw some inspiration from Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics. Oh uh, yes, where uh, Delirium is um, being actually kind of vicious because uh, she she causes a. Uh, a police officer who stops them uh, to to basically imagine that bugs are crawling all, all over him for the rest of his life, and he's just doing his job. Uh, <laughs> so, so if you really piss uh, piss him off, he, he will probably do something like that. Uh, and and again, he if needs to, he he will have the fortitude and uh, and and just the the blood points to to tear through um, quite a few at least neonates. So, but yeah, that's that's Alexandros the Greek. What do you think? Uh, I think it's awesome. Um, I can see him both as if if you want to invest enough points in generation, you could you could actually be a rather interesting sire. Um, mm-hmm. And as you said, as a as a patron, someone you can come to, or possibly as as a rumor, like if you go to this area near Athens, there is an oracle you can you can talk to, because especially in in the Dark Ages era, people. Canaanites, uh, they really saw the Malkavians as oracles uh, that that were able to to foretell the future and and things hidden. So I I really really like it. Mm, yeah, glad glad to hear. Okay, it. I I wanted yeah, actually so... just just the uh, touching on on the topic of oracles. I, uh, I I felt that kind of the it it's a bit of a cliche that that the Malkavians are always like religious oracles with with all of the prophecies and stuff so i I Mm. wanted to move away a bit from him so it's it's more that he speaks from experience rather than (laughs) that he speaks from from the future uh, of the future so Mm. but but yeah i'm I'm glad you like it excellent so um rather uh uh and um obvious transition is from uh, Greece to Rome. The Romans very much saw themselves as the heritors of Greek society and basically idolized the Greek civilization, their writers, their culture, and so on. However, they also saw themselves as sort of the natural evolution of the Greeks. Mm. Basically, the Romans were everything the Greeks were, but just better. So they they took their gods and gave them different names, and they they had the... um, uh, all the the science and engineering of the Greeks, and they just said, "Yeah, and all that's really great, and you need to read uh, the ancient uh, Greeks, but everything the Romans do is better than the Greeks. It's based on the Gre- uh, on what the Greeks were doing, but it's better." Um, 
If you generalize a lot, you can divide Roman history into the Roman Kingdom, the Roman Republic, the Roman Empire, and then Eastern Rome, more commonly known as Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire, which carried on Roman culture after the fall of the city of Rome and the end of the Western Roman Empire. Uh, since Roman history covers such a broad span, I'm going to be looking at what an elder from the Roman uh, Empire uh, in the time that was called the Pax Romana ah. would be like, uh, which is roughly like 30 BC to 170 uh, AD. It's it's a, a span of around uh, 200 years where you really had Rome at its peak golden age, the Roman Empire. Uh, and the elder that I'll be presenting later was embraced in or around the year 1117, which was the year when the Emperor Trajan died and Roman had its greatest extent, reaching all the way from the Persian Gulf in the east to the Iberian Peninsula in the, peninsula in the west, uh, from what is today southern Egypt in the south to Hadrian's Wall in the British Isles in the north, so it covered a vast area. Um, now, the Roman Empire rose out of a series of civil wars that ended when Julius Caesar's adopted son, Octavian, defeated the forces of Mark Anthony and Cleopatra in 31 BC. Now, if you want a really cool look at this, I can recommend an old HBO uh, TV series called Rome. Uh, there were two seasons of that. Season one is just amazing. Season two suffers a bit from the fact that they were told that this was going to be the last season, so they had to squeeze it together a bit. But yeah. it gives you a really, really great uh, idea of how Rome was in in the time that, that I will be focusing on here. So I really can't recommend that enough. Um, after Octavian, his adopted son Tiberius took over, and we have the beginning of a sort of inherited power structure. Uh, the emperors of the area era were generally competent and, for uh, the time, reasonable men, and included such well-known uh, well names as Trajan, Hadrian, and Marcus Aurelius. Um, in fact, the five last emperors of this time was was known as the five good emperors. Now, this doesn't that mean that they were... doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, five good emperors. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they were these benevolent um, people... Uh, but for uh, rulers of the time, they were very good and they wanted to rule um, a state that was ruled well. Uh, they, they believed in, in proper good rulership. Uh, during this time, the Pax Romana or Roman peace began. This was, like I said, a golden age, a period of prosperity and progress. And although Rome expanded, it was one of almost peace there was still a bit of, of conquest and there were clashes with foreigners or what the Romans would consider barbarians at the edges of Roman territory, but Rome wasn't at war with any great powers. Uh, in the time that I've chosen to represent 1117, Romans, especially high-ranking Romans, are absolutely sure of Romans, Roman dominance and supremacy. If it's within the borders of Rome, then it's, it's good, and if it's not within the borders of Rome, then it's not worth having. Um, you know, they, they, they ignore the fact that, that 
the Sarmatians and the Germ- uh, Germanic tribes of northern Germany kind of prevented them from expanding and, and more or less retcon it to be, well, we never really wanted that area anyway. Yeah. There's no reason to have that area uh, because it's not worth it for Rome to yeah, have that area. It's a silly place. Let's not go there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, what what we got beaten by a bunch of, of Germanic barbarians? No, no, not at all. Not at all. We just, it's only forest. There's nothing beyond that yeah. forest. Ignoring the fact that they actually knew what was beyond that forest, because in Denmark they found uh, Roman glassware from this episode, and they found amber in Rome. So there's a very good um, indication yeah. that that the the people that lived in what is now Denmark traded with the Romans. So they knew there was something oh, yeah, they, on the other side. Yeah, but they, they, there, they didn't there are connections, uh, especially a bit later on. But but yeah, there there are traces uh, of of Roman. Uh, artifacts way up in in uh, uh, Scandinavia. Yeah. However, people not from Rome or not even from the Italian peninsula could become Roman and would be considered equal to Romans if they accepted Roman rule, accepted Roman culture and adopted Roman ways. Um, This was actually uh, the big problem that the Romans had with the Jews and the Christians because they didn't want to adopt Roman customs, and most importantly, they didn't want to accept that the Roman emperor was divinely sanctioned and became a god upon uh, upon uh, death. Um, but it was what was really, really important was to have Roman citizenship, and those not born Roman citizens could earn that uh, place uh, usually through military service. So it wasn't like, oh, you're not born in Rome or you're not born in one of Rome's Italian cities, so you're not worth anything. No, no, if if they had been accepted as a Roman citizen and they they acted the way a Roman citizen should act, then it didn't really matter where they came from. They could come from, uh, from the British Isles. They could come from southern Egypt, wherever. That was cool because by adopting the Roman way, you became a Roman, and that was how the Romans saw it. Rome was so powerful that it d- didn't matter where you came from as because when you adopted the Roman way and became a Roman citizen, that overpowered everything else. Um, so an elder who came from this time will probably come off as arrogant, though given the reverence the people of the Dark Ages time period hold the Roman Empire in, their arrogance might be considered quite justified. I mean, if they go around saying, I'm Roman, thus I am brilliant. Sure, it's arrogant, but people of this time would probably say, well, ye- yes, obviously, because Rome was the greatest thing ever. Yeah, um, if, if they can demonstrate that they're not just faking it, that they, they exactly. actually are from the Roman Empire, uh, then then yeah, it's, it would definitely be quite impressive. Yeah, there's a reason why um, Charlemagne had himself crowned as um, empire, uh, emperor of the Romans, why the um, mainly Germanic emperors were uh, Holy Roman emperors. Mm. Everything that that uh, went back to Rome gave it legitimacy. Even um, uh, a title such as Tsar uh, in Russia comes from Caesar, which you know the 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 Roman uh, imperial title. You had uh, uh, later kings of France calling calling themselves Augustus, which was a title given to several Roman emperors. Yeah. So Rome really was in Western Europe. Uh, the lost golden age that everyone aspired to um, to sort of of 
be uh, the heritors too. Yeah, and and of course, when it comes to the the word Caesar, you have the same in in Swedish and Denmark, which is Caesar and Kaiser in Kaiser. German. Uh, so, yeah, exactly. so yeah, it's 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 a title that lives on in in quite a few ways. Yeah, um, and. I mean, uh, a Roman elder, as I mentioned, need not be Italian. They could have come from just about anywhere in the Roman Empire, as long as they consider themselves Roman and act as a proper Roman. Uh, socially, a person of this time uh, would have been patriarchal even by medieval standards. Women had even less rights and social position in the Roman Empire than in medieval Europe. However, such beliefs tend not to survive the centuries as a vampire, so it would be a very rare elder who still holds on to these beliefs. Religious beliefs, however, tend to survive quite a bit better in vampires. And when it comes to religion, this is one area where the Romans weren't always all about the Roman. Uh, it seems most, uh, almost like the Romans got a bit tired of the same old gods, whom, as you mentioned, they, they'd taken from the Greek yeah. and given new names. And gods from other places were actually beginning to become uh, fashionable, mm. especially if they carried with them an air of mystery. For example... Uh, Cleopatra brought with her the worship of Isis and her mystery cult, and the Persian god Mithras became especially popular amongst the Roman military. Yeah. So, so again, I'm, I think I forgot to mention it, but uh, the the Greek uh, empire that uh, that Romans conquered uh, wasn't just like what is now modern Greece. It is. Uh, it, it was basically the the. Uh, a Hellenistic empire that uh, that Alexander the Great left left mm. after him, and it was uh, Persian, as you mentioned, down to Egypt. Uh, in Alexander the Great, famously, of course, he conquered all the way to to modern day India. So, so you had all these influences from from even that that part of the world, so to speak. Which, from a vampire point of view, I think is kind of interesting because then you could have this. Like even even your character that you're talking about could come from as far away as uh, as India uh, or or at least the Near East, uh, mm. and and of course the empire is a great way of of uh, spreading vampires uh, as well because you you can be a, a Roman um, official being sent as uh, or a, at least a, a Roman vampire uh, being sent from to to the far corners of of the empire like you mentioned as far up north as as to the british isles or perhaps as far east as as persia or or down to to southern egypt uh, so so it's a great way with both the greek and roman empires to kind of spread vampires around if you, if you don't want it as as eurocentric uh, as as the official game is you can kind of spread them out a bit uh, just, just yeah. with with the help of of empire travelers, and we know that the Roman Empire traded with, um, as we mentioned before, with with Denmark mm. uh, and the rest of Scandinavia, which would be Gangrel territory at this point. We know that they traded; they got gold and salt from uh, Mali and Ghana, yeah. probably ivory as well, uh, elephants for their uh, great spectacles. So you have vampires down there we know that they uh, got silk from china there was the silk road mm. which <laughs> famously went from china to the sarmatian empire then the sarmatians took over 
transported it to the the borders of the Roman empires, and then the Romans took it all the way to Rome. The Sarmatians made a lot of money as middlemen oh, yeah. in the uh, <laughs> in in that uh, in that trade. They, they the Sarmatian Empire is actually quite an interesting uh, area at this uh, time. It could be fun to look at them at some point. Yeah, we, um, we should do that. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, uh, let's look at an imperial Roman elder. Rome was famously influenced by the La Sombra, Malkavian, and Ventru clans. This is this is a, a very well-known story where they they had that uh, the Brugia, in alliance with the Bali, had. Um, Carthage. Why have I forgot? Carthage. Thank you very much. Can't believe I forgot that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had the whole war, but obviously Rome being the the center of this huge empire, you would have a lot of clans there. Probably not that many Brugia, but um, you would have the Nosferatu, considering the vast underground uh, area that Rome had. Uh, Cappadocians, obviously. Um, like just about any clans, I imagine a lot of followers of Set after, uh, especially after Caesar had his thing going on with Cleopatra. Uh, so you could have most clans there. Uh, but I'm going to go with the Ventru. The the person that I'm the elder that I'm presenting could be a La Sombra as well, possibly even a Malkavian. But as baseline, he's a Ventru, and he was embraced during the Pax Romana around the year 117 A.D. when Rome was at its strongest. Being um, a Ventru, he was a patrician in life. The patricians were originally the powerful families of Rome, uh, but by the time of the empire, they had lost much of that power. Uh, Still, the patricians had more privilege than the lower classes and more access to political influence. They were sort of kind of the nobles, but they they were different from what you would think of as nobility in the Middle Ages, but you could still use the term nobles for them. Uh, and being of that kind of family, he will he will have been on the road of kings. Um, so let's give our elder a name. In this period, Roman names Roman males were given three names: the prenomen, the nomen, and the cognomen. Uh, literally, the before name, the name, and the by name. The prenomen uh, came from a relatively short list and was often abbreviated. We'll go with Lucius because I think Lucius just sounds cool. Uh, the nomen is the family or clan name. Um, in Roman terms, this type of family or clan was called a gens. Uh, I've chosen Sulpicia, one of the oldest families, or gens. And then we have the cognomen, which would be an inherited name or a nickname. Uh, some men used more than one. I'm going with Victor, victory, because it's cool. Uh, so this gives us Lucius Sulpicia Victor, L. Sulpicia Victor in formal writing, generally just called Sulpicia Victor or Victor among those whom he generously allows to be familiar with him. Um, Now at this point, the Roman army had moved away from universal conscription and instead had standing armies of professional volunteers. However, Victor here is the son of a senator, so he joins something called the Cursus Honorum, or the course of honor, the proper path of of an aspiring politician, which includes military service. Uh, Victor starts off with 10 years as an equites or cavalryman, uh, well-equipped and somewhat similar to the knights of the Middle Ages. After that, Victor becomes a quaestor, serving either in an imperial administration in Rome or as a second-in-command to govern in the provinces. 
after uh, or second in command to a governor in the provinces and after this he could run for various offices when he was considered old enough things like praetor or consul and then move on to become governor or censor uh, and it here it's here that victor is embraced in his early 40s a powerful civil servant and politician with great connections and a fair bit of experience uh, so with all that, Victor has some combat skills, though they're likely not something he has practiced since leaving the army, and he can ride. Uh, he can also read and write because any Roman patrician would be able to read and write, and in the Pax Romana era, a lot of non-patricians learned to read and write as well. Literacy was actually uh, quite well uh, distributed at this time. It was, it was not... Um, Let's say it, it wasn't 50% of the Roman population that could read or write, but it was uh, more than in 1197. Yeah, if you're um, from the right social standing, you probably could read and write at least a bit. Yeah, so he will look down on any vampire who comes from a noble family and cannot read. And in 1197, uh, it wasn't common for nobles to learn how to read and write. Mm. They used um, clergy. For as their scribes and to read letters to them. Yeah. Uh, and even 30 to 40 years later, in, in the later Dark Ages settings, it, it wasn't universal among, among nobles. So he can obviously speak the Latin of the day, which is different from the church Latin of 1197, but it's probably very close to the kind of Latin that the Canaanites of Europe use as their common language. Victor will probably also be able to read Greek in order to appear learned and civilized, but he's unlikely to be able to actually speak Greek because he's only ever dealt with it in books. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he's, he's read the big uh, thinkers that you talked about in, in the Greek episode. Uh, other than that, since Victor was an ambitious politi politician, he'll have social talents and skills um, and he'll know politics and law. However, uh, his knowledge of politics will have to be adapted since Roman politics were different than almost all medieval politics. The closest in the Middle Ages political system would be that of the northern Italian city-states. Law, however, translates very well since most European countries in the Middle Ages based their laws as much as possible on Roman laws, with England kind of being the odd one out they were if I recall correctly, starting to sort of do their common law yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, this is about the time. Uh, and of course, I'm, one problem that that uh, uh, Victor might run into is that uh, laws are also starting to be based uh, more and more on, uh, on biblical canon law. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Canon law started to influence secular law. Yeah, so so he needs to keep up with that, otherwise he's going to have some difficulties. But but yeah, England yeah. Is, is starting to with their weird common law system, which is still <laughs> uh, even to modern standards uh, considered a bit weird. Yeah, and that then influenced um, uh, American U.S. Yeah. American law. But that's a uh, that's that's later than than what we're dealing yeah, with. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't have to go there. <laughs> no, it's such a silly place. Yeah. Um, so how would Victor look? Well, the average height of a Roman male in imperial times, based on skeletal remains, is 168 centimeters or five and a half feet, which is only a little shorter than the average height in medieval times. So there's no real difference there. 
Being a rich civil servant, he will likely have a bit of a paunch, though he still spent 10 years as a soldier and probably went riding in his mortal days from time to time, so he's not going to be fat. The big difference is going to be the hair, which high-ranking Romans like to cut relatively short and then curl. They actually prefer to have barbers do their hair whenever possible and curl it, and their um were writings of the time where I think it was Cicero who, who advised Roman men not to curl their hair too much because they would actually appear too feminine uh, and they wouldn't be able to score if they did that, which I absolutely love. Yeah, that does sound like Cicero. Yeah. Um, Roman men uh, also uh, shaved and tried to keep their uh, bodies hair-free, plucking the hairs out with tweezers. Some older men would grow beards as a sign of wisdom, uh, but Victor was embraced in his early 40s, so he's going to be clean-shaven with short-cropped hair that he will have curled whenever possible, and as little body hair as possible. Um, as for clothing, well, obviously, as a Ventru, he will follow the latest trends when in public, but at strictly canine gatherings, uh, a Roman elder is likely to play up their status given the general veneration of Rome and wear traditional Roman clothing. This includes a short-sleeved knee-length tunic, probably sandals, and to mark his august status, uh, a toga like the Greeks did, even though the Romans actually really didn't like wearing togas. Uh, we have writings where... where uh, Roman senators and other high-ranking Romans complained that they had to wear uh, a toker. So I, I guess it's like kind of like a tuxedo. It's not all that comfortable, but you got to wear it to look right sometimes. Yeah, exactly. It's it's the, the, one of those things that you you're gonna have to squeeze into if if you really want to make an impression. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, there's weapon and armor. Being a Roman patrician with military experience, I imagine Victor will be willing to gear up and fight if needed. He's unlikely to ride into battle, however, being a vampire now. And besides, he never learned how to ride with stirrups. The Romans didn't have stirrups. They came in uh, later. Uh, for armor, Roman cavalry usually wore something called Lorica Hamata male armor, but a wealthy and important man like Victor would have the money to wear something better and more impressive. So either the lorica musculata or muscle cuirass inspired by the Greeks, or something called lorica plumata, mm. which is a combination of scale and mail, with the scales made to look like feathers. The musculata was sometimes made of shaped leather, but for uh, a canine looking for protection, we can assume that it's made out of metal. Usually bronze might be iron... Um, Bronze was the most common uh, because making such a big plate out of iron would make it heavy. It would be difficult to make. Yeah. But there were a few that were made of, of iron. Yeah, and, the and plumata, is, especially sorry, if, you, if you wanted to, to shape it in, in this kind of, of flowing fashion, because that's that's kind of the biggest problem with iron is that it's it's hard to get these, these rounded shapes uh, and, yeah, and exactly. nipples and stuff like that that uh, the yeah, most would have. Yeah, bronze is cast, whereas iron is forged, mm. so shaping bronze is just a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, the plumata was reserved for high-ranking leaders, both because of its cost and because of its ostentatious look, uh, but he could go for that. In, ad in addition to the lorica, he will also wear the galea, the classic Roman helmet with a crest and cheek plates. As for weapons, uh, he uses a spatha, uh, S-P-A-T-H-A, which was a Roman sword that was longer than the famous gladius and originally mainly used by mounted troops because if you're on a horse, you need a longer weapon to reach yeah. enemies on the ground. This was the forerunner to the, the swords that you would have in the early 
Middle Ages, and which then developed into the swords that you have in in 1197 and onwards. And finally, he also has a palmer, uh, which is a shield that's smaller than the well-known scutum, and it's either round or oval in shape. So, so how does this elder view the Middle Ages? Uh, he probably views it as an uncivilized and ignorant time where semi-barbaric warlords rule over comically small territories with no real culture. The Romans were able to connect all parts of their territory with a vast road ne network and extremely advanced roads and built uh, great buildings and even sewers and they had massive and relatively effective bureaucracy. They had complex taxation and more. So Victor is going to be decrying the collapse of Western civilization. Um, the only thing that he's probably going to see as, as good is that um, the um, people of the Middle Ages have continued the tradition of bathing. Uh, and the reason that I mention that is people seem to think that uh, the people of the Middle Ages were dirty all the time. But if you lived in a city or even in a town, there would be one or more bathhouses. Yeah, especially in the places that used to belong to the Roman Empire, like, for example, the city called Bath in England. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and, and a bunch of German cities called Bath something. Yeah, exact, exactly. So are there still actual baths in Bath that are, are still open? I know that the, the, like the physical remains of, of the buildings uh, are there, and it's a tourist attraction, of course. Uh, and, and that they were probably still open are. For, for like hundreds of years as actual bathhouses yeah. uh, after the fall of the Roman Empire. But are they still around? I think they are. If if we have any uh, British listeners who've been to Bath or non-British listeners who've been to Bath, let us know. But I, I think they're still around. Um, so finally, Victor will also have a great dislike for Christianity and blame the downfall of Rome on that religion, uh, simply saying that that. Christianity made the Roman Empire weak and unable to withstand outside enemies, many of which were either uh, Christian or converted to Christianity shortly after they attacked Rome. Uh, he's also going to be confused about the animosity that Christianity had, uh, has towards Judaism, because in his mind, Christianity and Judaism are pretty much the same. Christianity is just Judaism 1.1 or something like that. Yeah. He doesn't really see the big difference between it's, those two it's just a, religions. It's just a sect. It's just another cult for, for them. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, he's the kind of person who would probably, if he was unable to become the prince of uh, a city be the senescial or another high-ranking person who would be willing to become uh, a patron of the appropriate type of, of character and very much be uh, an antagonist towards someone, uh, towards people who didn't show the proper respect for Roman uh, culture and Roman history. Um, so that was, that was my Roman elder. Cool. So I'm I'm thinking is is he the kind of Ventru that has basically stuck around in the same place for the last thousands uh, thousands of years, or or has he actually been around? Like is is he a desktop bureaucrat that that yeah, has I'm, the same I'm, desk? I'm thinking yeah, I'm thinking he's he's someone who was either stationed outside of Rome and Rome fell, or left Rome and Rome fell, and and so he stayed because. You know, he, he sees wherever he is as his remnant of Rome, and he fights mm, to keep that yeah. as Roman as possible. Yeah, hearkening back to the um, 
uh, side quest we did about buildings, he would be the kind of person who would definitely use his influence to try and keep Roman buildings alive, oh, like yeah. baths. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I like that. Now, yeah, I was thinking that, like, is he actually well-traveled or or is he kind of like, no, I'm, I, I, was, I, I once was stationed in Spain when I was alive and I'm never going back there. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to sit in my castle and it's going to look the same forever. Yeah, exactly. That's that's he he's he's very much the conservative type. Mm. So that was that was our first two offerings. Now we have, as mentioned, plans for um, looking at more um, cultures and times. Things like, for example, um, the Franks under Charlemagne, uh, the Celts in the British Isles. Obviously, given who we are, we're going to dedicate an entire episode to the Vikings. Um, but if people have suggestions for other cultures, other time periods where they think it could be fun for us to look at how would an elder from this time period look, uh, please let us know uh, through the usual channels. I mean, what could be especially interesting would probably be to look beyond Europe, though at least me, I don't know that much about it. So it's going to take some some research, but I'm willing to do that. Yeah, if, uh, if anyone has any ideas that, that we would like to tell uh, our listeners like you have this cool character concept uh, can we please talk about it in the podcast then throw us a line and, and we'll see what we can do and one thing that i think could be really interesting at some point would also be to look at um judaism uh, in the middle ages and predating the middle ages but once again that's something where we'd have to do some research uh, and if there's any of our listeners who happen to be uh, jewish then once again let us know um Peter, do you have anything to say before we sign off? Uh, no, I, again, I, I just want to keep thanking our listeners for for listening to to this silly little podcast. And if you uh, if you have friends or enemies or uh, families <laughs> that might be interested in it, uh, please share uh, share it with with them as well. Uh, and I want to wish everyone a happy new year as well, and hope that. This one will bring lots of joy and uh, at least won't be as bad as the last one. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, all right. The next book we're covering is Libello Sanguinis 2. That will be a week from now. And with that, it's goodbye from me, Jacob. And from me, Peter. Farewell and see you next time. Goodbye.